Luke 11, 37 through 44. While Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him. So he went in and reclined at table. The Pharisee was astonished to see that he did not first wash before dinner. And the Lord said to him, now you Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You fools, did not he who made the outside make the inside also? But give as alms those things that are within, and behold, everything is clean for you. But woe to you, Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Woe to you, Pharisees, for you love the best seat in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. Woe to you, for you are like unmarked graves, and people walk over them without knowing it. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Before we tackle this cheery passage, um, I thought I would give you all a brief little update. I didn't know where to put this in in the, in the uh, uh, flow of the service, but I will just let you know that my wife, Kathy, is doing fine. There's no, um, no, no labor yet, but I also thought I would give you a little bit of an update so you know what to expect over the next couple weeks because the doctors have told Kathy that she has till the 29th to begin the process or they will begin it for her and have, they will be induced. So I guess that is 10 days, right? Oh boy, so that's 10 days. Um, so there's, there is gonna be a Sunday that you will expect to see me and my family here, and well, you won't, because they'll be uh, recovering from uh, little Jaden being born. And now, I had a couple conversations last week with some of you that thought, made me realize, oh, I need to be better about communicating. So, to be very clear, um, yes, my wife is having this baby, his name is Jaden, and he is not our baby, because my wife is a surrogate. And so if you have any questions about that, what that entails, we are an open book. My wife has a whole Instagram page that she's been keeping people up on, about just a journey that she's been on. But as some of you asked, are you excited about your, your child? And I said, oh, I'm excited that he's going home with someone else. Because um, I've already, you know, I've changed diapers, I, I did that decade. Um, so, but if you have any questions, please feel free to ask me. Do, there's no question that you could think of uh, that we haven't already been asked and that we're not open to asking. So definitely feel free to ask that. But we, my wife partnered up with a family who needed, uh, who was unable to carry a child to term. And so she partnered with them and she's, as she says it, I'm the oven. So those are her words, not mine, but we just uh, covet your prayers because no matter what, she's still going to be going through quite a time in the next 10 days. And uh, so pray for her and pray for the baby and pray for the family, and uh, we're excited about it. But I didn't want you to see us come in in, a, in, de in December to church and wonder where the baby was. And I thought that would be also confusing, so I thought, let's just, you know, put it out there. Um, so anyway, I just appreciate your prayers and, and all the support that you've given us thus far. Now at this point, I invite you to just pray with me as we come into our time where we look at God's word. 
Father, I pray that as we look at this challenging text, this challenging teaching that Jesus gave to the Pharisees, I pray that you'll be with us and that your spirit might speak through me and that your people will hear what you need them to hear this morning. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. So I said when I came up here, well, boy, what a cheery text for Thanksgiving week. Sometimes when I plan things out, I don't look at the calendar as closely as I ought. But here we have um, a text where Jesus basically picks a fight, doesn't he? He goes and he's invited and there's some tense moments and some, some of the key leaders that are still trying to figure out who is this man? The people are drawn to him. He's speaking about things with authority. He's doing these miraculous signs. of Who is he and what is his agenda? So they invited him over to dinner yet again. And so I love these times with dinner. Now, the passage here, we stopped at 44, but later on you'll get the introduction that also the, the, the scribes of the law were there as well. Just a clue. If you ever read that the Pharisees and the scribes are together, the Pharisee and the lawyers, my apologies to our lawyers in the, in the congregation, when they are together, it's not a good time. It's, a, it's not a happy meal with Jesus. Um, so here we have Jesus starting up. And so many of you are just hearing, reading this. The Pharisees were surprised and noticed that Jesus did not wash before the meal. And some of you are starting to cringe and go, ooh, he didn't wash up before the meal? Now just remember, we didn't learn about germs until the middle of like the 19th century. So while, yes, they did have cleanliness things, they were ceremonial, they were religious, and they did not know about the germs that you are cringing about. So if you're a little bit germophobic, I understand this is a challenging passage for you. But Jesus... He goes into this dinner with the Pharisees, and he challenges them, and he provokes a challenge. So it leads me, my first question is, why? Why was Jesus so harsh with these people? What was so wrong with the Pharisees that he wanted to provoke a confrontation, provoke a fight, to make a point? Well, historically, um, if you've grown up in and around the church or if you've heard any Bible messages from the New Testament, Pharisee is just pretty much synonymous with bad guy. Pharisee is just pretty much synonymous with legalist. Now, I don't think that is necessarily the fairest rendering of this whole group of people. At the time that Jesus was around, there was estimated to be about 6,000 Pharisees. That there was a group of uh, people that they had to go through certain training and, and, and commitments and procedures to, to be decreed to, to a Pharisee. The Pharisee had only been around for a couple hundred years. They came out of the Maccabean revolt, and it was a response to what was happening inside of Israel. But historically, the way we Christians have responded towards anybody called a Pharisee, it's not been complimentary. It's been tied into an idea that we get from the Reformation, that the Pharisees represented works righteousness. And by works righteousness, we mean that you get your right standing before God by obeying the law perfectly, or good enough, or better than. You see, works righteousness says, uh, can be expressed in, well, I haven't killed anybody, or I hope at the end I've done enough good things to, you know, counterbalance the bad things. Have you ever heard anybody say those kind of statements, or think that that's how God works? Is that he's keeping a ledger? He's like the... Are the kids out? He's like the grandiose uh, cosmic Santa who's keeping track of right and wrongs. 
I mean, that's my biggest beef with the Santa story is that it trains our kids to think that, like, we're just keeping track. And if you're bad, there's no blessing, right? And it seems kind of like counterintuitive to what we're trying to say with the gospel. You see, historically, Luther had imposed his, well, his uh, 16th century setting onto the New Testament readings, He imposed what he was facing with his tensions within the Catholic Church at that time of uh, of works righteousness, where you had to buy your way into and out of purgatory, where you had to do enough good things, where if you did wrongs, you were given a list of good things to do or penance to do or Hail Marys to, to, to cover the wrongs that you did. And it was a transactional approach towards a relationship and good standing with God. And that is not the way the Pharisees saw their standing with God. They were not trying to earn salvation. They were trying to earn blessing. They were trying to set a path and a course for Israel that would then allow God to pour out his blessings upon and free them from occupation, free them from Hellenistic and Greek and Roman influence. The Pharisees had distinctives that all Jewish people needed to observe the Mosaic purity laws. They were more into the purity laws than they were into the temple worship and the temple laws. So whether you were going to the temple or not, you had to obey the purity laws. And a lot of the purity codes were in who you surrounded yourself with, how you carried out your affairs, what you did to sustain your life, how you ate, how you lived, and and so forth. So that was one of their distinctives. Another was that they had a, a continued adherence uh, to the laws and traditions uh, in the face of assimilation. So it wasn't just purity for purity's sake. It was purity to identify we are not the other, the polluter, the Greek, the Roman. They were, not, they were looking to resist that assimilation within the, the, the Holy Roman Empire. And then also Josephus, also a Pharisee, he noted that the Pharisees were considered to be the most expert and accurate expositors of Jewish law. So that in their day, if a, if a rabbi, a Pharisee, gave a ruling about something, it was considered to be, oh, that must be, the, that's the truth, that's the way. So they were a small group, but were highly, highly esteemed and highly powerful and influential. So that's kind of who they were in their times. The Pharisees' teachings and ways were purity, obedience to the letter of the law as they saw it and taught it. Rome would be overthrown and Judea would be reestablished under God when all is pure. If we didn't know better, I would think that when the Messiah came, he would see this group as an ally. Right? I mean, they have a lot in common. They both really love God's word. They both really love the study of God's law and and believe that God has chosen this people to be a special people, to bless, to be blessed, to be in relation, to to enjoy the land and so forth. And the Messiah, you'd think, would like to ally themselves with somebody who cared to be obedient to God's ways and to God's laws. You'd like to um, yoke yourself with people who were very committed to the religious life of the community. They were regular church attenders, you can imagine. They uh, were committed to prayer. They were committed to the culture and to the customs and to the ways. And so you might think that the Messiah would naturally maybe even be a Pharisee himself. Expressing a total commitment to God and his people and his ways. 
But as we all know, Jesus did not align himself with this group. It brings us to this odd and kind of crazy text. Again, we have the dinner party. But Jesus, I think, intentionally chooses to break the code. Jesus knows the customs. He knows the ways. He was raised as a little boy of of washing up before dinner. But it wasn't just washing up. It was a ceremonial washing. It was a ritualistic washing. There were prayers and there were statements that were made and things that you do to do this washing. Jesus skipped it. Jesus skipped it. It was shocking. It was jarring. It was highly noticeable to the host and to his friends. And they noticed. They were surprised and noticed that Jesus did not wash before the meal. Jesus picked a fight. There's other times where he did, when he would intentionally heal someone on the Sabbath, or he would intentionally um, roll oats in his hands to eat on a Sabbath. But he did a lot of things to kind of, again, provoke what the expectations of faithfulness to God looked like and what they actually were. So yet again, Jesus is challenging, you think this is what devotion to God looks like, but you're missing the point. Look how Jesus challenged them after he, they kind of calls, call him out on it. You clean the outside of the cup, you clean the outside of the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. I think Jesus would fit in in the East Coast very well. He didn't mince any words. He went straight to the point. He got to the heart of the matter. You think if you just have outward obedience, that's going to fix the inward problems. But I see in you greed. I see in you wickedness. You foolish people, did not the one who made the outside make the inside also? And verse 41 is key. Because this is where he's offering them a chance. And we don't know how they totally, re- how everybody at this dinner received it. But this is where he offers them a chance for repentance. But now, as for what's inside you, be generous to the poor and everything will be clean for you. There is a path for you to change. He challenged them and accused them of greediness. And he said, start caring for the poor and your inside will be changed. Then he continues on with the woes. Meg, I appreciated how you read that with the the heavy pause on the woes. Because nobody, I mean, it's language we don't use today. Does anybody ever say, woe to you, my friend? We don't sit around and watch the the Eagles Cowboys get, woe to those Cowboys. It's just not language we use anymore. But we still recognize it as heavy-handed. We still recognize it as threatening. We We recognize it as this is a serious, serious charge. Woe to you Pharisees because you give a tenth of your mint and rue and all other kinds of garden herbs, but you neglect justice and the love of God. Why is it such a big deal that they tithe? Isn't the church in favor of tithing and kind of worshiping through giving? Sure. But what they were doing was noting that if you didn't obey the exact rendering, which wasn't the biblical teaching, but it was the extra biblical teaching of the culture of what to do, that if you don't follow their teaching of it, you are now a sinner. You are now unclean, not because you ate food that was deemed unclean, but because you didn't do it right. They're focusing on the minutia. They're focusing on these little teeny tiny ideas that are actually interpretations that came from within their subset. 
And yet Jesus tries to bring them back. He contrasts, oh, no, you don't understand the love of God. You are focusing on all these little details about eating, and you neglect justice. You should have practiced the latter without leaving the former undone. Woe to you, Pharisees, because you love the most important seats in the synagogues and the respectful greetings in the marketplaces. Woe to you because you are like unmarked graves with which people walk over without knowing it. Being likened to an unmarked grave. Grave is a, it's, it's, it's death and it's unclean. And these men, these Pharisees, devoted their lives to being always ritually, spiritually clean. That was the thing at the very beginning. They saw that Jesus broke the code and now was unclean. He now was actually sinning by the way he entered into this meal in their eyes. He challenged them right at the heart of where they focused and what their attention was on. You are unclean, you are like the dead. You are like an unmarked grave that people just walk around. I think it's interesting that we, well, we stopped our scripture reading because I know that we've had some long passages, and so I didn't want to give Mega the, like, the longest passage to read. But this story goes all the way through verse 54. And it, and it starts there at 45 and says, Well, one of the experts of the law answered Jesus and said, Teacher, when you say these things, you insult us also. Couldn't let well enough alone. They couldn't just see that the Pharisees were about to get uh, a little bit of a reprimand here. They decided to jump in and say, well, you're talking about us too. All right. So Jesus turned his attention to them. They probably should have sat that one out. Let's just be honest. Jesus looked and how he challenged them. You overload the people with heavy burdens. You do not help them carry it, verse 46. You killed the prophets and you built their tombs, which means you approved of their rejection. Verse 47 through 49. This generation will be held accountable for all the prophets spilled blood. Verse 50 and 51. And you do not have knowledge, and yet you keep the people from gaining the knowledge of God too. Whoa. These are the leaders. These are the esteemed members. These are the influencers. These are the ones who hold the reins of what is Torah and what is not. What is law and what is not? What is godly practice and what is not? These are the caretakers, the gatekeepers, and the makers of this. And Jesus told them that they are the people who don't, not only do not have knowledge of God, they, don't, they, they impede the people of God from getting it. Needless to say, Jesus didn't make any friends that day. Uh, he didn't uh, have a mass conversion moment. It appears. In verse 53, it said, When Jesus went outside, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law began to oppose him fiercely and to besiege him with questions, waiting to catch him in something that he might say. So let's take a look. What, again, was Jesus' key um, issues with this group? It's not that they didn't... Jesus wasn't faulting them for wanting to obey the law. He wasn't faulting them for wanting to honor God with their lives. But he's, he was challenging them that you've missed the point completely. You've made it all about the minutia, missing the majors. 
And it's all about you being in power and lording it over others. It's all about you esteeming your own reputation and your own stance and your own social position. It's challenging. So what are our takeaways from this challenging passage from Jesus? Knowing the heart of God is not the same as a strict obedience to the greed upon religious rules. Let me say that again. Knowing the heart of God is not the same as knowing the rules of a religious community and abiding by them. I've been in church a long time, and I know many amazingly wonderful and beautiful Christians who seem to get a little bit hung up on the key do's and don'ts. I was raised down in the South where the, in the Bible Belt, where the key to being a Christian was clearly knowing your place in the world. Don't drink, don't chew, don't smoke, and don't hang out with people who do all those things. Did I say don't curse too? Yeah, keep, the, keep your, don't do that. Like those are like the five things, and that, that shows that you are, a, ready, a good Christian. You see, I, I was raised by a, a, a teacher, and we would drive in, and I would hear that like some of the teachers talk about the, the students, and right outside the high school, there was, it was off school property, there was always the group of kids that were smokers. And they're under 18, they're not allowed to be smoking, but they're smoking, and they're addicted because that's what happens when you uh, smoke regularly. And so there's this group of, of smokers. And I heard some of the teachers, because I had access to them uh, because of my parents, some of the teachers would refer to them as the winner's circle. You hear it, don't you? The smug, the condescension. Because those are the kids breaking the rules. Those are the kids that are dirty. Those are the kids that have what? Problems. If, if they were back in this day and age, the, the, those teachers would be the ones calling them the what? The sinners. And I would drive by the winner's circle every day on my ra- ra- getting a ride into ch- church and to school. And then in, in my high school years, um, when, when God made himself real to me, when God called me to him, and then I started to become part of a youth group that taught me about the amazing grace of God and mercy of God and the love of the gospel and the fact that the barriers between God and man have been torn down because of Jesus. I, I started to learn about how the people who were far from God were brought near into his family and were adopted and were named children and now were no longer enemies, but were were daughters and sons. They were no longer dead in sin, but now they were alive and alive eternally. And that the heart of God is that all humanity comes to know Jesus. I started to learn that at church. And guess what I started to see differently? The winner's circle. The winner's circle wasn't a group of kids that needed to be avoided or rejected. They were God's children too. I mean, sure, smoking's not good for you. We all know that. I'll tell you that while I'm lighting up a cigar sometimes. But is that what makes me lovable or approachable by God? Is that I've avoided the five big things that, whatever it is, every group seems to come up with five or six key issues. And it's funny how they're different. Kind of shows that they're not necessarily from God. Joel Green said this about this passage. Jesus is interested in redefining purity. 
It's highlighted in verse 41, which said, but now as for what is inside you, be generous to the poor and everything will be clean for you. Jesus is redefining what is purity. What behavior would represent the sort of purity sanctioned by God? Jesus directs attention toward purity that overcomes uh, socio-religious barriers, that overcomes indirect contrast to one that separates people from another. It overcomes keeping people separated. Jesus' new purity is a purity manifest in social relationships, not behaviors in tribes. Explicitly, on a behavior, he highlights almsgiving. And it's collapsed the distance between social elite and the needy. This idea about giving alms and giving to the poor isn't just a, it doesn't correspond with our modern day understanding of charity. Rather, for Luke, almsgiving was an expression of genuine social solidarity, embracing those in need as if they were members of one's own kin group. I think that's the challenge for us as we do ministry to those who have needs, to not be paternalistic, to not do it from a position of privilege to those who have lacking, who, oh, thank goodness you've met us. And that's one of the challenges that we have, and it's just because that's how human nature works. But when we embody the good news message of Jesus, the, the relational purity that Jesus is calling these Pharisees to, when we embody that, we can then embrace those in need as if they were members of our own kin group. That is our goal, friends. That is our takeaway, that we might be self-reflective of am I near to the heart of God Am I near to what God cares about most? Am I prioritizing the text that bring me to the space of God's central core gospel? It reminds me of Luke's um, start to Jesus' ministry back in chapter 4 when Jesus went to the synagogue in his hometown and he opens up the scroll and he reads from Isaiah and says, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom to the prisoners, the recovery of sight to the blind, and to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll, he set it down, and he said to them, this has now been fulfilled in your midst today. To a thunderous applause where they said, yes, the Messiah is, oh wait, no, they, they got really mad and they tried to take him out to the edge of town and he slipped through their midst. That's how Jesus started his ministry, with proclaiming, this is the year of the Lord. This is good news to the poor. This is going to set captives free. This is going to release prisoners. This is going to bring healing. And this is going to bring oppression to an end. This is my kingdom. This is the heart of God. And it's not just there that that happens. In Luke 5, we took, took a look at when Jesus invited a tax collector to join his team. And then he went and had dinner with him. And the, you know, the, again, the religious people were really upset. Does he know he's having dinner with sinners? Well, yes, he did. And he said that it's the sick who need a physician. And it's the sinners who need a savior. In Luke 7, we saw that Jesus allowed the corrupt woman, the corrupted woman to touch him and to weep on his feet. We saw that he allowed her to pour perfume and anoint him. And then he did what? He forgave her sins? That's who's welcome in his kingdom, are the people who repent, the people who confess, the people who see their need of a savior. And then we see in Luke 10, who is my neighbor? 
It's the Samaritan, right? The neighbor is the one who, who showed mercy. And who showed mercy? It was the one who they hated. It was the other from the other tribe, from the other place. This is the Jesus that we know. This is the gospel we have heard. This is the name of Jesus that we sing about every Sunday. This is the, this is the Jesus who went to the cross to defeat the powers, to defeat death through dying first. He didn't raise up an army. He didn't lift the sword. He didn't rally the powers and principalities. No. He didn't pass legislation. No. He took it and went through it and rose and defeated death and sin. And he inaugurated and began a new kingdom with a new set of heart and values. Friends, let us not slip into what just comes so natural to coming up with our list of the big five things that we do to make sure that other Christians think we're a good Christian. But instead, let us draw near to the heart of God. Let us draw near to the good news that we find through Luke, that all who were far were brought near, that God has installed his kingdom now, and that this body, this group that we are a part of called the church, we are just a foretaste of the coming kingdom when he returns. We're going to come to the table, and we're going to have a taste again to remember God's goodness to us so that we remember this week just how good God is and God is present with us so that we can taste and see that the Lord is good as a foretaste, longing for the day when Christ returns and makes it complete. How we see and accept others through the lens of Jesus' love and mercy is far more important than our attendance, than our tithing, than our Bible memorization, our perfect obedience to the written and unwritten rules of belonging to the church. So friends, let us have eyes and see. Let us have ears to hear. Amen? Would you pray with me? Father, as we go from this, te- this teaching, we recognize that we are, we don't always follow it, and we need you. Father, we ask that you forgive us as we fail, and Lord, we pray that the Holy Spirit might make us to see where we're failing, make us to see where we are drawing near uh, to our own ways and not to your heart. And Lord, we pray that you might change us mold us and empower us to serve and walk with Jesus. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.